There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Jim Wolfrey. And you're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is Bob Bowman. Bob is an American swimming coach who is a four-time member of the US Olympic team staff, including being the head coach of the men's team at the 2016 Rio Olympics. He has so far guided swimmers to 38 Olympic medals, as well as 43 world records. Bob is presently the coach of the swim and dive team at Arizona State University. However, he is best known as being the coach of 23-time Olympic gold medalist, American swimmer, Michael Phelps. Bob has great energy, he's fun and engaging and brings a wide array of ideas from the world of music and books into his coaching. In our interview, you will hear him talk about his view of the role of a coach as being a co-pilot, not someone with magic dust, the wonderful story of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and how it shapes his approach to problem solving, how a big part of his philosophy is embracing times when things don't go so well and using them to identify the things that need to change and wanting to leave a legacy of encouraging people to believe that they can achieve something beyond what others say is reasonable. This was a great conversation with a coach who has worked side by side with the greatest ever Olympian and I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. 
But here at the Great Coaches Podcast, we're working to create one of the world's best leadership libraries from the lessons our interview guests share with us. You can help support our project, get exclusive content and early access to the Great Coaches Collection by joining our Patreon community. All the details on how you can be part of this journey are in the show notes. And now, please enjoy our interview with Bob Bowman. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Bob Bowman, good afternoon, my time, and good morning, your time, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Thanks, Paul, for having me. Pleasure to be here. Maybe just something really simple to get us going. Where are you in the world, and what have you been up to so far today? I am in Paradise Valley, Arizona, suburb just north of Tempe, a little bit east of Phoenix. And I got up at 4.15, had a cup of coffee, went and swam at 5 a.m., 2,500 yards, no meters, sorry, but 2,500 yards, and then came back, got myself together, and at 7 a.m., I'm doing a podcast unbelievable. You're putting me to shame. Well, it's great that you could carve out a little bit of time from your already busy morning to talk to us. Bob, maybe I'll start by name checking some of the the legends of the sport that you've been involved with. Murray Stevens, Mark Schubert, John Urbancheck, Sean Hutchinson, the amazing Eddie Reese, and of course, Greg Troy. And I'm really intrigued from this experience you've had up close with these great coaches. What is it you think that great coaches do differently that sets them apart? I think what they do differently is they have not tried to be someone else. They just are themselves. They believe in, they've learned and studied, right? Probably many different ways from many different coaches. That's what I tried to do. I tried to learn everything I could from each coach that I worked with or came along. John Urbanchek, good example. I tried to learn how his whole system worked. And then I took parts of that and put it into my system. But I didn't just take his system and just keep doing it. So I think each one of those great coaches has taken the best parts of what they learn from other people and put it together with their personalities and in their system and have evolved that into something that is consistently successful. So I'd say that's what they have in common. One of the interesting things about your story, Bob, is that you worked three different Olympic coaches as an assistant before becoming a head coach. Now, I know in swimming, this is not unusual, but still, I was wondering from that experience, if you can cast your mind back, was there anything that you remember you stopped doing because of that experience? I think I stopped believing that, (laughs) that all of this is extremely predictable because it's not. It's really unpredictable. I always believe, well, if you just put this in, you'll get this out. And while we'd like to believe that's true, to a certain extent, we operate on that premise. A lot of this depends on outside things that are beyond our control. And I think that's what I learned from each one of those guys. It was that Today, a certain situation exists, but that doesn't mean it's going to be the same in six weeks. So you keep working at it. And I would say that's what I stopped doing. It's just trying to see everything as like happening in a vacuum because it doesn't. It happens in life. We're dealing with real people. We are real people in real life situations. And as we know, life changes every minute. You don't know what's going to happen this afternoon, much less in three months. So I think that's kind of the biggest change I made after working with those guys. I think 
that learning actually is probably reflected in this next quote of yours that I'd like to play to you. I know it's one of your favourite sayings. You've probably heard it read back to you a lot. But you say, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. And I'm wondering, was there a particular event or a moment that helped you form an attachment to this belief? Not necessarily a particular event, but I would say many events over time that when you go back in time and you look at us, and it's for me, because of my life, it's usually based on an athlete at a meet, right? Or some situation where we're trying to get a performance or trying to get them to a level. And at the time it failed, right? <laughs> Mainly because maybe I didn't do something right or whatever I thought I was doing at the time was not correct. So it was bad judgment, <laughs> So the next time that situation comes around, I say, oh, remember back in 2003 when I did this and it didn't work? I'm going to change that this time. So now I have experience. I think at this time, we're probably going to go this path because the last time I learned a lot from going through that other path, it didn't seem to work. And there are just so many. It happens all the time. We've never met before today, although I feel like I know you after all the research (laughs) I've done. But this tendency to test and learn as a means of developing yourself and an athlete seems to be quite central to your style. It is. And how do you go about maintaining the energy to keep testing and learning all the time? Well, that's what makes it fun, right? You want to keep trying things and you want to keep doing them better. Interestingly, I just, ASU had all of our head coaches together and they had all of us take this thing called the predictive index. And it's largely a personality assessment. And it's shocking how with relatively little information we give them, they can come back with something that I think feels very accurate. And everybody who knows me says, oh my God, that's exactly right. But one of my tendencies is, well, there are a couple. (laughs) One is I like to be in charge. I'm a control freak. So everybody knew that part. But the other ones were, I tend to think through things really carefully. I don't just have an idea and act on it. I think about it really carefully. But once I've thought about it, I am completely willing to embrace change and take on risk. I'm not risk averse at all. I was off the charts. Like I love change and I love taking a risk to see what happens because that's how you get better. So I would say that's what I kind of brought to my coaching is that I've never been afraid to try something and fail because that's where you learn the most. And there's a great quote out there that says, failure is not the opposite of success. It's part of success. It's part of the process. If you're not failing, you're never going to ultimately be successful because everybody is going to fail and you're not going to get very much information to help you get better. So that's when I tell my athletes, you learn the most when things don't go well. That's when we can sit down and say, okay, what are these things that we have to change to be where we want to be? When you have a great swim, somebody breaks a world record or something, you just pat yourself on the back and say, oh, we'll just keep doing that. And it never works that way. You have to keep evolving and changing and growing. So that's a big part of my philosophy. I've interviewed more than 100 coaches now from around the world. Many of them, like you, have coached athletes that have won Olympic golds and teams and so forth. There's this ongoing trend around a comfort of testing and learning that I'm not sure is as as prevalent in the rest of society. And I wonder if it is a prerequisite to coach at the elite level? Well, I think it's part of it. It's just part of high performance, whether it's a coach or 
a baker or <laughs> anything, right? I think you have to kind of be pushing the limits a little bit or you need to try to innovate or you're just going to be stale because you can't do the same things. Eddie Reese has been coaching for a very long time. I don't know how long, but a long time, right? And he does some things today that are similar to what he did 30 years ago, but they're not the same. And he's doing a lot of new things because that's what, number one, keeps it fresh and interesting. Who wants to do the same thing for 30 years? And number two, the sport changes. The athletes that we're working with are in different situations. So we have to change with that. And I think that becomes part of the trial and error or just, and the way I look at it, it's not quite as simple as trial and error. I'm not just coming up with some idea and saying, okay, I'll do this. There are some reasons behind it, right? It's relatively thought out before we do it. This is why I think these things will work. And every now and then I'll just try something because I've been doing it for a while and I have a feel for it maybe. But I think in general, people at the top of their professions are not afraid to try something because that's a chance. It's a huge opportunity. I don't see it as a risk. I see it as an opportunity. You're either going to have a great success or you're going to learn a lot so that next time you can have a great success. Got another great quote from you, Bob, and I think it builds a little bit on the life view you just shared. You say, pressure comes when you start paying attention to external causes of things that happen. It's such a great idea and perhaps easier said than done. And I wanted to ask you how you work with your athletes to ensure that they do pay as little attention as possible to these external noises. Well, I'm a big believer in a process-oriented program, right? We focus on our process. And process goals are things that are 100% in our control, how we practice, the standards we have for ourselves, how we behave in the pool, out of the pool, the attitude we bring to our work. All of those things are completely how are you going to swim a certain race, how your strategies, how they're going to be in the moment. We tend to leave those things out and spend our time where we can have the most impact. And I do think that helps alleviate a lot of this pressure because they're focused inward more than outward. One of the things that I told Michael was a quote I stole from Ian Thorpe. I saw he gave in an interview when he was at the height of his career. And he said, they asked him about pressure. He's like, what do you think about all this pressure that's on you? And he's like, well, I look at it like this. If you look at it from a negative standpoint, it's pressure. But if you look at it from a positive standpoint, it's support. A lot of people care about what I'm doing and are interested in it. And I always told Michael that, and I think that was a good way to look at it too. The reason there's pressure is because people care about it and they're interested in it, right? And in what you're going to do. So if you can kind of channel that a little bit, I think it helps as well. Is reframing people's thoughts a large part of your daily work? Almost all of my daily work. (laughs) Reframing their thoughts and sometimes reframing their actions a little bit, but it's a big part of it. Because what we do is very difficult. It's very boring. And the sad part about what most of our work is, is that it's just repetitive. So they've done it before. It's hard. It's difficult. It's exhausting. And there's no real let up in the consistency of it. It just keeps happening day after day. So you have, that's where the mental game is important because if they're engaged in that mentally and they're trying to make their stroke do a certain thing under this stress or trying to improve on some aspect of what we're trying to do, they can get a lot out of it. But if they don't, they could just do it and not get much out of it. So almost all of what I do is on the mental side, trying to get them to be engaged, to 
make things important. A great coach once told me, if you make something important enough, they will think it's important. So that's a big part of my job, pointing out what the key elements are and why they're important. So I would say that reframing things is a big part of my job. One of the things that fascinates me about swimming is, and you alluded to it there, boring, being quite boring, and you're you're trapped sort of in your own head with limited stimulus around you. You're looking ahead of you. And there must be the opportunity for people to overthink or over-speculate. And I'm wondering if that is the case, how you go about helping people with that. There definitely is that potential. What I try to do is get them to focus on the other side of the equation, which is let your mind be free. You finally have two hours in your day where you can leave everything else out there, get in this beautiful pool and just free your mind up, focus on something else. So that's sort of how I do it. And I even noticed that in myself. When I started swimming again after 30 years not swimming, I actually hurt my knee, so I had to swim. It's the only thing I could do. It was very hard. I swam 500 yards, which is 20 lengths of a short course pool. And it just took forever. And I was like, I'm not even going to get through this. And I just stayed at it and stayed at it. And what I found was after I had done enough to just be in shape enough to do it, every time I got out of the pool, I just felt great brain-wise, physically, but just all that. I was like, man, I just feel great when I swim. And now I will go in and swim and I have my trusty Apple watch on to count my laps. So I don't have to worry about that. But I will think in my inner clock, I'm like, well, I must have gone about a thousand. And I'll look at the clock and it'll be 1800 at my watch. So you just lose that sense of space and time a little bit. And it's a wonderful thing. I love that. So that's what I try to get them to find in practice. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So from the meditative nature of swimming to music, because I know Mm -hmm. it plays a big part in your life and you try to listen to good music every day, so the articles online tell me. But I wanted to ask you about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and how that in particular impacts you. Wow. Well, I think Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is an amazing, well, number one, if you ask people who know about such things, and I won't pretend to say I really know, but kind of know, what the greatest musical works are, and certainly in the classical genre, and say, give me your top five, Beethoven's Ninth has to be in it. They might not have it first. I would have it way up there. Okay, so it's one of the greatest pieces of music ever written. And the story behind it's amazing because (laughs) near the end of his career, Beethoven basically became a recluse. He wasn't seen around, 
there's kind of this people were wondering what's going on. So finally in Vienna, they said, okay, we're going to have this premiere of the Ninth Symphony. So people came. It was a big deal. It was one of these, back in the day, they used to have, you know how we have music festivals now and all these bands play, it's like all day. Well, the classical concerts were like that. They would do three or four symphonies and concert, they would last like four or five hours. So at the end of it was this Beethoven's Night. And it was, a chorus was there. There were vocal soloists. It was a huge orchestra. And Beethoven came out when they started and he sat in front of the conductor. The conductor had his back to the audience and was conducting. And Beethoven sat with the score as they played the Ninth Symphony. And it was amazing, right? It's just this incredible work about kind of ties up all the rest of his works, right? It's the, the end, his last symphony. And the last movement has the Ode to Joy. Schiller wrote this beautiful poem about brotherhood and all these wonderful themes and it's sung, and it's some of the most inspiring music ever. And the crowd was watching as Beethoven was sort of conducting himself and looking at the score. Well, at the end of this piece, it's tremendously, it's moves quickly, it's very loud, it's a lot of energy at the thing, and it ends typically as Beethoven ends every piece where the tonic chord is beat into your head for bars and bars and bars. Dum, 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 you know, it's big. So... The crowd went wild. It was a, a riot. It literally was categorized as a riot because they gave three standing ovations. And if you did more than that, except for the king, it was a riot. And they had to clear the place. But so immediately they started going crazy. And they looked down and Beethoven was still going through the score and conducting. And then they realized he hadn't heard any of the music, despite the fact that he was sitting in the orchestra. He was completely deaf. So... The greatest music ever written at that time, most certainly, had been written by a guy who never heard one note of it. It was just in his brain. So what it means to me is what level of problem solving and resolve to continue on would it take to do that? Certainly much more than anything we ever do in swimming. <laughs> so if that is possible, then somebody, a woman can swim 51 and 100 free, for sure. We know that, right? So that's kind of why it's special to me. I'm seeing this theme of reframing coming through time and time again. <laughs> The famous football coach, Lou Holtz, used to use the acronym WIG. What's yep. important now yep. to help guide his athletes? Now, I understand that you use this as well. I do. How does this help them? Since I started, I always believed in that because it's really true. It's mainly about taking care of your business. Take care of the things that matter and take care of the things that matter now, not sometime in the future. But what it really means now to me 
is this, it reinforces this concept of being in the present moment. I don't know when it was, but I'm going to say probably 2011, 2010, 2011. Peter Carlyle, who's my agent and Michael's agent, gave me a book by Eckhart Tolle called The Power of Now. And since then, I have read or listened to it 10 times. It's an amazing and life-changing book. But what it's about is living in the present moment. And that's what when what's important now means to me. Life happens right now. It doesn't happen tomorrow and yesterday is gone. So we need to focus our efforts, our energy, our attention on the present moment and be as present as we can to really live fully or to achieve what we want to achieve. That's part of it. So that's what it means to me. Let's try to be as present as we can. What happens when you leave the present moment and go into the future? If you have too much focus on the future, you become anxious, nervous, right? What's going to happen if? Well, what if, if you have too much focus on the past, I really regret that. I wish I had not done that. You could be depressed, right? Present moment has none of those. Right now, as I sit here, I don't have a problem in the world. I have 15 of them once I get in that car and go down to the office. So that's how it works. But right now, I am in a great place. I'm present with you, hopefully. I am enjoying this and I'm getting something out of it. And hopefully your listeners are going to get something out of it. So that's what it means to me. Well, let's build on this idea of being present because you also talk about not so much coaching. You talk a lot about partnerships. Mm -hmm. You talk about this partnership between the coach and the athlete. Listening to you talk about it, it's very egalitarian. It sounds almost, it sounds symbiotic, but very balanced. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could share a story, and I know there's many famous ones about Michael, and I'm very happy to hear his stories <laughs> about him, but I'm wondering if there's another story where you've unlocked this partnership and it's ultimately led to improved performance, perhaps for you, but definitely for the athlete. That's a good one. Alison Schmidt. I started coaching Allison when she was 15. Yeah, she was in high school. <laughs> My favorite story about that is she came in before practice and I wanted to kind of start her on a dry land program, right? Like an exercise program. And I was like, well, let's just try a couple of things and get a feel for where you are on this. And she's like, okay. And I was like, do a push up for me. So she gets down on the ground and she can't do one push up. I was like, have you done your push? She's like, that's all I've got. I'm like, okay, so you can't do a push up. That's amazing, right? Somebody who would end up being Olympic champion. But so that's, I always laugh. We always laugh about that. So in the beginning, it was pretty obvious that we had this very kind of stereotypical coach athlete role. She was a young girl. I was her coach. I said, jump. She asked how high, right? I told her everything to do and she just wanted to do it and did it. But as she grew and we stayed together, that really shifted. Instead of me just saying, here's what we're going to do, you do it, and then making decisions myself based on what I saw. I started trying to get feedback from her. How do you feel when this happens? What are you feeling before this race? So it very much became two-sided. It wasn't just me giving out information and her taking it. It was her giving information, me taking it. I was working together, trying to figure out the best path for her to take. And by the time she took a year out of college to come train with me for the 2012 Olympics, and I would say we were very much at that point in a partnership where 
every day I was trying to get some feedback from her on where she was, really maybe even personally, not even just the swimming. How are you feeling about this today? Is there anything that we need to kind of discuss? All of these sort of things. And we got very good at having discussions that when I was a younger coach, you just don't like to have. Right? <laughs> I'm feeling this. Can you help me with that? And we had a couple of hiccups in the road in her Olympic preparation that were like very eye-opening for me in that Allison is always a kind of sunny, happy person, always, almost always. And I'd see her be a little sad sometimes, but it was usually like very temporary. Oh, I didn't do well on that. I wish I could do better. Okay. And she'd move on. And we were in a training camp in Colorado Springs and she got out one day of the pool and just was streaming tears down her face, like hysterically. And I was like, whoa, not sure what to do here. And that was the first time that she taught me a very important lesson because what did I do? As a typical man, I wanted to fix it, right? Okay, what can we do? I'll get you this. We can do this. We'll see this. What do we need to do? And finally, she said to me in that moment, she's like, I don't need you to do anything. I just need you to be here for me. <laughs> And that's what I did. And I was like, okay, I'm here. Whatever you need to say, say it. And then we'll start working towards it. So then we were kind of much more, I think, on even footing and what was going on in her path. That was what really crystallized it for me. It's like, it's not me just sitting up here telling people what to do and then they go do well. We're walking this path together. And I saw Allison last night. We're playing with my grandchildren. We're closer than any swimmer and coach. We're like family. She's like my daughter. I guess she kind of is my one of them. But it's that kind of, I believe, commitment to the person that you're working with, which will ultimately help them succeed. She had as good an Olympics as a person can have in 2012 and then came back in 16 and came back in 21, which is just remarkable to even do that. So that's a good example, I guess, of that. And I have a hard time with my college people now, right? Because when they walk in the door, they think because they've read about me or had seen, heard podcasts of me that somehow I'm the all-knowing, right? I got an answer for everything and I'm just going to fix their problems and I'm going to give them the magic dust. I'm going to sprinkle it on them and they're going to be good. So we have to go through a process of them learning that they're driving the bus. I'm just with them. I'm their co-pilot. I hopefully keep them from making too many wrong turns or going too fast or too slow. But I just guide the process. I am not the process. They are. And the more that they understand that, the better they are. Then the better they swim. Visualization is something I've heard you talk a lot about as well. Sure. And this was something I know that Michael Phelps was able to do quite well. He was able to visualize the race going exactly the way he wants when he was preparing. Mm -hmm. Are there any particular methods that you've found better than others when it comes to using visualization? Yes. And Michael taught me this, and I didn't even know it until after the Beijing Olympics. Michael would not only visualize the race, the ideal race, he would visualize scenarios in which the race didn't go the way he had planned. Somebody went out faster than he thought. He missed a turn. Something would happen, right? And then he would use that to formulate a plan if something happened, what he would do to correct it. And I thought that was very powerful. And listening now to a lot of sports psychologists or, or people who are specialists in this field, 
that's a very good perspective to have because things don't just always go the way, you know, you can swim your race the way you want to swim it, but other people are in there swimming and there is a dynamic that you don't always understand. So having a variety of scenarios sort of programmed in your brain is a great way to be prepared for what happens, but anything that could happen. And that's what Michael would say. He was like, I would visualize uh, the way I wanted my race to go, the way it could go, and what would happen if it didn't go the way I wanted, you know, all the ways it could go. And I thought that was very good. And I try to encourage people to do that as well. It kind of goes back to a concept that I was just actually, I can't remember what brought it up. I was reading a book, I guess. They interviewed people who were prisoners of war in Vietnam. John McCain was one of them. I guess John McCain's book. I don't know. But, and they said, who were the people who got through that were survivors, right? Who did that? Who who were the ones that made it? And you would think that the ones who made it would be the optimists, right? They look on the bright side, but that wasn't true because what would happen to the optimists was they would say, we're going to be out of here by Christmas and be, you know, look forward to that. Christmas would come and go. Well, we'll be out by Easter. Easter would come and go. And after a while, they just couldn't keep doing that, right? They were heartbroken, right? The realist who said, this is tough and I don't know how long it's going to last, but today I'm going to do the best I can present moment, right? They were the ones who made it. And I think that's it's same in racing. The realists are the ones who do the best, not the ones who have some fantasy about, well, I'm going to swim a certain world record. Maybe you will, but you'd be better off to think about, I want to swim my race at a certain pace, at a certain stroke rate with certain kicks underwater and at this speed. And if something changes that up, I want to be able to adapt to that so I can still win a gold medal. I think those are somehow similar in my mind, that if you have a more pragmatic view of it, you will do better in the long run. I think it's an amazing quote. I've heard heard it attributed to Stockdale. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Stockdale paradox. That's what we were talking about. Got it. (laughs) So, Bob, you've been very generous with your time today. And I've even though it's only early, you've probably got many more laps of the pool to swim. <laughs> and I'd like to just frame the final question by playing back what Michael Phelps wrote in the forward to your book. And in that he says, without Bob, I have no shot at achieving the records I've achieved or winning the medals that I've won. It's an amazing endorsement from one of the greatest or the greatest Olympian, depending on which way you look at it, of all time. But I wondered in your words... What is the legacy that you hope you've left as a coach? Because I'm fairly sure it's more than those medals. Yeah, it's a lot more, I hope. I think the legacy I want to leave is that everyone can achieve something beyond what people say is reasonable. And everyone can do something special here. We're here for a really short time. And it's important that everybody find that avenue and they find a community that they can work towards things with and that they can ultimately be able to know that they have basically unlimited potential and they can turn it into actual if they want to work hard enough and consistently pursue their goals. That's it. Unlimited potential is a really good way to finish. Bob, it's been a real treat for me spending this 45 minutes with you today. I appreciate you setting the time across the side for me, and I wish you all the best on the road towards Paris. 
Thank you, Paul. Enjoyed it. Hi, everyone. It's Mike here, and you've been listening to the great coach, Bob Bowman. I hope you got a lot out of Bob's engaging style and found a few ideas that you can bring to your own dinner table, locker room, or boardroom table for discussion. Some of Bob's key ideas that resonated with me was the story he shared of how Michael Phelps uses visualization to plan for all contingencies. How people at the top of their profession are not afraid to try something different if it presents an opportunity. Bob's belief that good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. And the story Bob shares of how he learned to reframe his view of pressure based on an interview he heard with the iconic swimmer Ian Thorpe. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like Samantha Rocky, who said, How wonderful. So many insights and important lessons shared. Thanks, Samantha. We love the interaction with people around the world who listen. And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. And please let your friends know, too. All the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.